Let's focus ourselves on the book of John. We're in the third chapter this morning, and while I would love to do the entirety of the third chapter together, it is just so much just great information that we're going to have to break it up into a couple chunks. And this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. And I know you go, oh, but you missed John 3, 16. We're going to get to that next week. But we're just going to go through the first 15 verses. And I kind of want to set the stage. We've been talking about this idea that the book of John is presenting to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the overcoming God King. That he is unique in all of history and all of time. And the book of John puts on full display this amazing character and person we have in Jesus Christ, along with all the work that he's done on our behalf. It highlights it above everything. And this morning we're going to look at a character in history called Nicodemus. And just to give a little backstory about Nicodemus, uh, and we'll see some of this in the text, he was a man more than anything else that was driven by perfection. He wanted to obey God. There was no doubt that he wanted to obey God. But he went about obeying God according to the Jewish traditions and customs that were established for him to follow. And I want to share with you three of the things that he would propose and state that's important for you to follow if you want to be a holy person. The first thing he would say, and this is three things among almost a thousand different rules and laws. One of the things that he would say in order to be a good believer of God, you need to cover your mirrors on the Sabbath day. In fact, you need to go through your house on Friday, cover your mirrors, and then on Sunday you can uncover your mirrors. And the reason why you need to do that in order to be holy is if there's a lady in the house, a mom or a grandma, she may be very tempted on the Sabbath day to walk by the mirror and notice that she has a gray hair. And she may be tempted to pull that gray hair out, which would be causing her to work, which would be causing her to break the Sabbath, which would mean she has to bring a sacrifice to God. Second thing, he would propose and he would say, you need to do this in order to be a godly person. Let's say you have a sore throat. People get sore throats all the time. And back in that day, the answer to that was taking a little bit of vinegar. And that would kind of hurt it more. I don't know. Or make you feel of other pain so you didn't have a sore throat. But on the Sabbath day, he would instruct you, it's fine to take vinegar, but don't you dare gargle it. Because gargling it causes you to work. And that is a sin. And it makes you distant from God. And another thing that he would tell you, um, obviously in Israel they live in a, in, a, in a time where you couldn't go to the store and buy eggs, and so you would have chickens. That would be common in your own home to have chickens out roosting. And if the chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to eat it because your animal was working unless you intended to kill that chicken one day and eat it. That's three rules that they would put on you so that you would demonstrate how holy and dedicated you are to God. Not one of those rules are ever found in Scripture. 
The idea of honoring the Sabbath day and taking one day of rest, giving it to the Lord, dedicating yourself to him, making him special that day above other days. Yes, that's in there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But all those other things are man-made rules. And it's three of just thousands that they created that shows you how to live a holy life. And this man, Nicodemus, lived like that. He had an answer for every question you might have. Is that a sin or is that not a sin? He would know it. And he would hold you to it and he would call you to it and he would live it in his own life. Imagine that type of pressure and stress that if I want to live a holy life to God, i got to cover the mirrors. I can't look at and pull gray hair on a Sabbath. I better make sure I don't gargle if I have a sore throat, and I better make sure that I want to kill that chicken one day if I want to eat an egg that he laid on the Sabbath. How many rules have you got to follow? It's immense. And it becomes what? A burden. And then you look at God as a God of burdens, not a God of hope and promise and future but a God of burdens. And this is the man who came to Jesus. The first three verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the first of three general questions that Nicodemus brings to Jesus. And notice a couple things right off the bat about Nicodemus. Is he comes to him at night. Why does Nicodemus come to him at night? Because he's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And if he was found talking to Jesus, who already had controversy just the day before in rooting out the temple of idolatry and making it a place of unfair trade, he goes to him at night. We're told that he's a Pharisee. The Pharisee, that group of people, started during uh, the intertestamental time between 500 B.C. and the time of Christ. And they rose to power and prominence because they were constantly being invaded. And the last invasion of the Greeks just decimated them. And so the Pharisees kind of rose up because they weren't allowed to have temple sacrifices. The temple was desecrated. This group of people kind of rose up and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to make Israel Israel again. We're, we're going to be the ones that impose the culture again and the law again and the rituals again. We're going to lead the people because we've been devastated by rulers coming in, first the Greeks and now the Romans. And so the Pharisees became very much not just this is how you draw near to God, but we need to be Israel again and identify as Israelites and, and have national pride and, and, and create our cities to be great again and, and get a king on the throne again. They were as much politically motivated to see Israel succeed as they were desperate to make them look different than the Greeks and the Romans that have invaded them and make Israel a holy nation unto God. And the way they did that was not through the preaching and teaching of God's word, but the implementation of human rules and regulations that were such a burden that people didn't even want to turn to God because he's a God of burden, not a God of hope, promise, and the future. 
He comes to Jesus and acknowledges that he's a teacher. He goes, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. And the reason why we know that is because you're performing signs and miracles and wonders that there's no explanation for. It's not a, a magic trick. It's not a sleight of hand. It's not some futuristic science that you've brought and, 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 and a time traveler and you're amazing us with what a light bulb can do. No, no. This is indeed from God. We recognize that. We know that there is something different, special, and unique about you as a person and your work. And so, even though it wasn't really a question, Jesus responds to it as a question. So you're stating this truth about me, let me tell you the truth about me. Is that truly, truly, I say to you, which is this idea of, you gotta pay attention. What I'm about to say is super duper important. In fact, there's nothing more important that I have to say than what I'm gonna say next so everyone pay attention, eyes front, hands down. And he says, I'll tell you this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Smash. Because in Nicodemus's mind, in the Pharisee's mind, in the Israelite's mind, if we want a kingdom... If we want Israel to be great again, if we want it to be recognized as God's gift to the region, if we want to be powerful again, if we want to have our terms dictated to the ones around us, we need a kingdom. We need a strong kingdom. We need a kingdom like we used to have. You see, Israel was expecting some type of civil warrior to be risen up, to rid them of the political oppression that they have had going on for over 300 years, oppressed in their own promised land. And so when Jesus says, you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus was all fine about the kingdom coming. He wanted the kingdom to be restored in glory and majesty, but he had a different kingdom in mind. He wanted Israel as a nation to become great instead of the people of God becoming near to him. And instead of picking up arms and driving the Romans out and getting this national fervor of excitement about Israel again, Jesus says you need to be born again. And this opens up a wide range of problems. Not for us, because we're familiar with that term. We're familiar with what it means to be regenerated or coming to faith in Christ or having new life or being born again or converted or saved. Common words to us. But Nicodemus never had any need for those words because he was a Pharisee, a leader among the Jews. His rightness before God had nothing to do with his heart, but am I following the rules of covering the mirrors, of not gargling, of making sure I only eat eggs from chickens that I'm going to kill if they lay an egg on the Sabbath. He was full of rules. So when Jesus said you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God, he wanted to see the kingdom of God. His whole life was lived to bring the kingdom of God to fullness. But what's this idea of being born again? And so Nicodemus rightly answers Jesus at this moment in verses 4 through 8 and says the following, and Jesus responds. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Very obvious. Nicodemus, I totally agree with you. How can an old man be born again, go into the mother's womb, and come out a baby? 
totally unbelievable. And it is. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, Nicodemus is asking and answering the questions logically, absolute precision with logic. This doesn't make sense. I know you're a miracle worker. We've already acknowledged that you can do wonderful signs, but this is really baffling. Is it a trick question? Does he mean metaphorically born again, or does he mean physically born again? Nicodemus is thinking physically born again. That's the only option we have. That's what it means that they were born. When you say someone is born, what does that mean? They were born. And so Nicodemus is thinking, how do I do it again? And he's honest and asks that question of Jesus. And Jesus responds to that second question by saying, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, super important, put everything down, eyes front and center. Everyone's attention is on Jesus at this moment because exactly what he's going to say is absolute, unmitigated truth. No error here at all in what he's going to communicate. He says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus takes the approach that what he's saying should not at all be confusing to Nicodemus. That Nicodemus should be like, yeah, I got you. I totally understand it. We can go on to the next question because I totally understand what it means to be born again. But Jesus doubled downs and says, you have no clue what I'm talking about. You really do not understand. He says, you need to be born of the water and of the spirit and if you're not, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the nation of Israel coming back into power and glory and having political might. It has nothing to do with Israel having boundaries, a president, a king, nothing to do with Israel as a nation. This is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel is just but a small taste of what the kingdom of God should be like. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you need to be born of the water and of the Spirit. And there has been countless pages and commentaries written about what does Jesus mean, born of the water. Well, I think if you take Scripture at its most basic sense, which means you read it as you're reading someone writing to you, and what is normal is normal, abnormal is usually discussed. But this idea of being born of the water and born of the Spirit Jesus actually explains in the very next sentence. He says, I'll tell you what it means to be born of the water. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's talking about a physical birth. And it might be obvious to you going, well, of course if I'm hearing this, I'm born, I'm a person, I'm, I was a baby, I grew up, and of course I'm born. If I'm part of the human race, I, I've been born. Yeah, but what are you born with? What are you born with? You're born with something that is terrifyingly separating you from God, that is keeping you out of the kingdom, 
that is keeping you far out of the kingdom. In fact, you're in a totally different kingdom when you are born. You're born a sinner. You're born separated from God already, not by your actions, but by your nature and your heart. Because what Adam and Eve did and sinning against God has been imputed to us and that we are all born not good or potentially good or just neutral. We are born sinners. So God starts out this message with, hey, you already have to understand that you're born. And that born just doesn't mean I'm physically come out of my mother's womb, but everything that is human is mine. Everything that is human is mine. All of its faults, all of its pains and sorrows, even the decay and death, that's mine. 100% me. I am a sinner before God. Without him changing me, that is my future, to wrestle with sin on my own. So I think the being born of the water, Jesus answers that. It's being born of the flesh, being fleshly human in all of its nature and sense. We are human. And he says, so you're going to be born human. You need to be born of the Spirit. And then he says, I'll explain what that means because you may not understand what it means to be born of the Spirit, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. So he says, don't marvel that I say this to you. This is not advanced teaching. This is as basic as being human and having a relationship with God. This is fundamentally elementary grade school kind of stuff. This is stuff that you would teach a toddler about their relationship with God, that they are human with all of its advanced intellect. I understand all of its emotion, yes, and its physical capacity, yes, but also the sinfulness that's attached to being born. Under the law, under the curse, under the burden that God places upon us, be holy for I am holy, and none of us are. And none of us can pretend I'm holier than the next person because we all start out with the same judgment. We're born out of sin. We're born from Adam and Eve's descendants. We are sinful by nature. So he says, don't be marveled that you need to be born again. Verse 7 and then verse 8, he explains how this takes place. He says, the wind blows where it wishes if you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Because I can think rationally how Nicodemus is processing all of this. He's still of the mindset that I'm a Pharisee, leader of the Jews, which means, first and foremost, my desire is to see Israel restored as a nation and Israelites being Israelites and stop being compromised by the Greek and Roman influence. We need to be separated, a holy people unto God. And the way we do that is to make our stand. So he might understand a little bit about being born of the flesh because he's probably associating that with being born an Israelite. And if you're born an Israelite, then you really only need to follow the law's obedience and everything is fine. Although they've burdened the people with an obedience that is unlivable, cannot survive and live according to God by man's man-made rules. But he understands what it's like to be born, born an Israelite, privileged, 
And of course, in that day and age, he would have thought, born a man, great privilege, even over those born a woman. But he doesn't understand this whole, what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? And so Jesus says, it's like this. You feel the wind, you hear the wind, you see the effects of the wind, but you don't have a full understanding of how all that happens. So you may not have a full understanding of how the Spirit invades a person's heart and brings it back to life, life eternal. You may not understand the workings of how faith and regeneration take place. You may not know all the intricacies and all the details of how a conversion takes place, but you see that a conversion takes place because they are now alive to God. You see the effects of the Spirit working in a person's heart, but you may not physically see it and know it and be able to digest it and investigate it in the way that you can a human birth. And I think Jesus' point in that is that we have to be okay in not being able to figure out every jot and tittle and detail on how someone is born again, how the Spirit works in the heart, where one person can hear exactly the same thing as another person, but that person comes to repentance. How is that? How does that work? They both heard the same message of the gospel, but one person responds with tears and begging God to redeem them, and the other person says, yeah, organized religion, just a crutch. I don't need that, I got myself. But they heard the same thing. The difference is the Spirit has worked in a heart in a unique way, in a way that doesn't have full understanding in our human mind And that person responds to that message by faith and believing and trusting and enjoying the kingdom of God. There's a third question that Nicodemus brings to him, and that's in verse 9 all the way through verse 15. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? How can this be true? I mean, Nicodemus is admitting, I don't understand what you're talking about. You're talking about things that are way above my head. Not using language that's above his head, but the concepts of being born again of the Spirit is necessary to be near to God and in God's kingdom. How is that possible? And Jesus rebukes him in verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly. That means pay attention. Put everything you're doing on the side burner, hands in your lap, ears and eyes attentive to the next message. Pay attention. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus, you are ignoring this simple truth, and you should know this simple truth because you are a teacher of the law. You should be teaching this, but this is absent from your preaching schedule on the Sabbath because you're clueless, because you're not in God's kingdom, because you're not near to God, because the Spirit has not worked in your heart. You have not repented. You have not exercised faith. You have not looked to the overcoming Messiah King Jesus, you are still relating to God based on rules that you made that are a burden. So you are misrepresenting God. 
says, you don't get this. You should get it. But you don't. Verse 12, if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus, in essence, is saying, I want to be able to talk to you about some really deep and spiritual insight into the nature of God and the nature of what's going on and what I'm doing here and what I'm going to accomplish. I want to share with you some of the great glory moments from the throne room of God and his instruction to you. But you can't understand the simple thing of being born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you are so far away from where you should be. And you have led so many people astray by your lack of understanding of who God is and what he requires of us. Where do I even start? Now, Jesus is not throwing up his hand, being frustrated, going, Nicodemus is a lost cause. He's doing this to Nicodemus, so Nicodemus feels that pressure of, what do I do next then? What do I do? And Jesus tells him exactly what to do next. He says, you know, if I had told you earthly things and you don't believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into the heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's, Jesus is saying, there is one connection that I can give you between what God wants and where you at, where you're at, not where you at, where you are at. One thing, and that is a person who has gone back and forth rightly representing the king, rightly representing God, rightly representing what is going on in the throne room, rightly representing his message. And that is this person who has descended from heaven onto earth, the son of man. Jesus is going, it's me. Nicodemus, if you can't figure out who I'm talking about, it's standing right in front of you. It cannot be any clearer. This person that you're hearing and seeing can touch and feel, it's me. I'm the one who is bridging that gap between an Israel full of religious and traditional rules and laws that bring burden to a God who brings freedom. I'm the one who's standing here between the two. I'm the one who's communicating from God to you. And I imagine that Nicodemus is still at this point going, uh, I was just going to maybe see if I could see a miracle tonight or figure out how do I get that power. And my mind is being rocked. I don't know which way is up, which way is down. I'm used to be the person in charge. I'm part of the Sanhedrin. I rule Israel's synagogues and temple worship. I'm in charge of their spiritual life and my first statement wasn't even a question, but he answers me as if it was a question. I only had two other questions, and I feel like my safety net is gone. It's slipping away. You mean it's not obedience to these thousands of rules I've made up and I've enforced? Because I'm really good at doing that. Well, I'm better than other people at doing that. Let's put it that way. I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot better than other people. Jesus is destroying that self-confidence that it's up to you 
and up to how well you obey the rules. I think Jesus beautifully demonstrates in the very last verse, verse 15, this compassion that he has so that people would understand him. And he uses stories. He uses illustrations. He uses, hey, what if this happens, then this happens. And he uses the Old Testament as a beautiful guidebook on how to have a right relationship with God. And he brings a story that I know Nicodemus is 100% familiar with. It's from Numbers uh, 21. And let me read what Jesus says. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In Numbers 21, Guess what the Israelites were doing at the time? Now, they're in the wilderness, so they're not in the promised land, but they're out of Egypt. Guess what the Israelites were doing at this time? Complaining. You're right, complaining. What were they complaining about? Oh, this miraculous food that you gave us, God, this manna, we're getting tired of it. Oh, can't we eat something else? It's really hot out here. It's dusty and dirty. Oh, I wish I was back in Egypt. There's no water. We had water when we were slaves. Who is leading us? Where's this Moses guy? Who appointed him the leader? God has abandoned us. We are going to die. They were doing what Israelites always do. They complain. Oh, it sounds a lot like us at times, doesn't it? Yeah, okay, well, that's not the point. So, Nicodemus is reminded of Numbers uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Numbers 21, where Israelite is living a life of complaining. And do you know what God does? God sends in a bunch of fiery serpents and bite the Israelites. And guess what starts to happen? They start to die. Then guess what they do? Typical Israel. Oh, God, have mercy on us. We've sinned against you, and we've worshipped other idols. We've complained about your mercy and your grace and your tenderness. Save us from this being bit by a snake thing. They turn to God because they realize they are hopeless. And God says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. Moses, I want you to take one of these serpents, make a bronze statue of it, whatever, and put it on a pole, and everyone who turns to that and looks at that will be saved from dying. And the immediate question is, what? Okay, I need medicine. I need anti-venom. How is looking at a bronze servant put on a pole going to help me one bit? This isn't a spiritual, psychological problem that I'm having. It's a physical problem. I've been bit by a snake, and I'm going to die. Jesus says, the whole point of that was for you to see me, Nicodemus, as the son of man who himself would be lifted up. And all of those who looked at me, believed in me, had faith in me, would then be saved. It is a supernatural event. There was nothing magical about looking at that bronze serpent to save them from that venom. And there is nothing magical about looking at Christ upon the cross as our sacrifice, believing in him, and being saved. It's faith. It is miraculous on God's part. 
That he can use something as simple as, yes, Jesus, I believe. Forgive me of my sin to save us. Well, shouldn't I be doing something? Isn't there like a, a set of things that I should do first and then I prove myself to be good enough for this salvation? If you think like that, you're just like Nicodemus. And Nicodemus just didn't think, how many things do I have to do in order to be near God? He created hundreds and thousands of rules. Not him, but all of the religious leaders in Israel created thousands of rules for you to follow so you'd be near to him so one day God's grace may shine upon you or his mercy or his face might shine upon you. And Jesus says, no, none of that is true. Just like in Israel, when they needed salvation, all they had to do was look to me, put their faith in me, and they would be saved. They would have life everlasting. And the reason why Jesus is confused or disappointed in Nicodemus not knowing all this is God has been crystal clear about being born again is necessary to be near to God. For he said in Ecclesiastes, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, and uh, 36, 25 through 27, and 37, 9 through 10, they're up on the screen for you, but let me just read a little snippet of it. I will take you from all nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. He's speaking spiritually here, not physical washing with water. And I will give you a new heart and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. How do you get into a relationship where Jesus and God is your God and you are his people? It's through the working of the spirit, the cleansing of our sins, the forgiveness of our hearts and us being made new again, born again. It has been there in the Old Testament from the very beginning. What God requires of me is not outward obedience. What God requires of me is a clean and contrite heart. And the only way I can have that is if God gives it to me. I can't create it myself. I cannot be good enough for God. You cannot be good enough for God. You will never be good enough because he requires perfection. Be holy for I am holy. God is not going to change his standard. So he sent someone, the son of man, Jesus, the overcoming Messiah, God, King, sent him to live that life on our behalf, perfection, so that he would be able to give it to us as a free gift, not bound to rules and regulations, but now we have a new heart that wants us to love and follow after God. His word, not man-made rules about covering a mirror, how to gargle or when to gargle and what kind of chicken egg I can eat and when. God is not a God of burden. God is a God of freedom and peace and forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and understanding and long-suffering that we would get the message, I need to look to Jesus. I need to look to Jesus. I need to have faith in him. 
that's what God is asking of me. I would encourage you later on uh, to read both Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23, as well as Romans 5, 1 and 2. Those two sets of verses are uh, super important in our understanding that God does not relate to us based on the law, but on the work of Christ. That all the other things that we add to what a good Christian looks like, we need to make sure that those are not added, but it's actually what God says is true. Otherwise, we repeat the same sins and errors that Nicodemus had. God never saves us through human religions. He only saves us when we surrender to the Son of Man who is lifted up. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for the redeeming work of your Son, Jesus Christ for his love, compassion, and mercy, for him coming down and then being lifted up, dying and rising again. Help us, Father, not to add human rules of obedience and conformity, both in our own hearts and judging others. But let us, Father, start and end with the working of the Spirit in our heart and how he does that. We praise you for that mystery and we accept it by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.